you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to the Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. Man, Sean, it's uh, been a, a good, informative, uh, eye-opening uh, journey, you know, to date. I think today, you know, it's going to be a great discussion uh, as we're going to take a deep dive into a topic that, you know, continually presents itself in every community, you know, that we've discussed or visited, you know, to date. And, and that topic, that theme uh, is anti-black racism. So let's get started. I think it's time to introduce our special guest. Uh, Vanessa Fels. Uh, Vanessa, welcome to the Loyalist Connections podcast. Vanessa, it's great to have you here today. We know the positive impact that you're having on the community today in terms of combating anti-black racism. You know, throughout our journey, understanding the African Nova Scotian experience has been challenging for us, and but we're now starting to put pieces uh, of the puzzle together. We're hoping that we can have an open and honest conversation about anti-black racism that will inspire us and our listeners to take action towards transformative change. Vanessa, before we dig in to this topic that you know so well, tell us about your connection to the uh, black and African Nova Scotian community. Yeah, Sean and I's connection is pretty much, you know, pretty much the same. It goes all the way back to the 1700s in Nova Scotia. My family are part uh, black planters in the Annapolis Valley region in Weymouth. Mm. And then the other half of the family are black loyalists. I've done my genealogy. Yeah. Got to love ancestry. Um, and when I, I worked at the Black Loyalist Heritage Museum for a while. So I did my family history and traced it all the way back to Argyle and Robert Keeley, who, who came here as black loyalists from Virginia. And yeah. it's, it's funny because when I trace those roots, you know, they got here and, you know, our, our Giles, uh daughter, Grace Keeling, married a guy named John Fells Sr. And when I did a little bit of a history uh, search on the Internet for the last name Fells, I found uh, black slaves in Virginia, which I already knew they were from Virginia with the last name Fells, who were on a plantation of a guy named William Fells. And he was a seafarer. And I was like, yep, that's probably them. And what's funny is that, the more that I've read, um, they were troublemakers back then. They started a, they started a slave uh, rebellion and burned down a few things. And, you know, some a few things may That's, have happened to them, but we won't get into that. Uh, yeah. but bloodline like, oh, strong. Right. Blood, bloodline strong. Yeah, I'm like, all right. Then, you know, a couple hundred years later, you know, Fells like to make good trouble. There it is. So tell us a little bit about your background. When I was younger, I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. Um, always wanted to be a lawyer. And then I went through university and I took like pre-law courses and wanted to do something in human rights. Uh, got all the way to writing the law school entrance exam, wrote it and was like, oh, oh no, no, I don't want to do this. This is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I realized I still wanted to do something in human rights. It was, it was more of I wanted to be able to help my community. So... <laughs> I still got a pre-law degree and a degree in sociology, and then I went on and got a master's in education. 
and policy and realized to change things for the community happens at the policy level. Uh-huh. Um, sure does. So then in like 2015, and that was a really quick history lesson on me, but uh, in 2015, <laughs> I actually represented uh, Canada in Geneva, Switzerland for the fellowship for people of African descent. Uh-huh. So they've, they've had it and I was the Canadian representative and I got there and learned wow. a lot about how the UN works and operates and a lot about the international decade, which we're still in uh-huh. until the end of 2024. And also realized that uh, Canada hadn't officially recognized the decade yet. And we were already almost a year in. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to fly with me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I knew the United States was never going to do it. Uh-huh. You know, even at that time, mm. they still had Obama. But it wasn't happening because the U.S. has its own issues to deal with. Yeah. But I was like, we just elected Trudeau. This has to happen. So I came home and started meeting with uh, our MLAs here in the province and met with our MPs and wrote a letter to Trudeau and was like, just started ringing the bell. So I love when you ring the bell. It's awesome. <laughs> I was going to tell you, like hearing your voice on the radio, speaking all over the communities, it's amazing. And thank you for doing that. So, yeah. It, I would love to take all the credit, but it wasn't just me. There were so many people working on it at all different levels, but it did happen. Uh-huh, and, you know, uh-huh. it didn't happen until like 2018, so it took a little bit, yeah. but at least it happened. Absolutely. So, you know, we recognize an international decade, both federally and provincially, and that opens a lot of doors to be able to, to have the more courageous conversations that yes. we're talking about. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. To, to, to move the conversation forward. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So when we talk about anti-black racism, how do we define this? And when you think about yourself specifically, both grew up in rural Nova Scotia, Mm -hmm. how it's impacted you. And so I'd like to hear your thoughts on definition and, you know, maybe an example or two about how it's actually impacted you as an African Nova Scotian, because we are a distinct group. We are a distinct group. We'll get into that. Yes. That's that's what I'm doing now. That's right. We'll get into that. I wrote this one down based on how I see it. Behaviors, policies, and practices that provide one group or race of people to have advantages, privileges, or superiority over another group of people. And in this case, we're talking about anti-black racism. Yeah. So the black community. People hear anti-black racism, and the first thing they think is, oh, white supremacy. And I'm like, well, that may be the top one, (laughs) but there are so many different levels Uh of anti-black racism. You have colorblindness, where the person says, I don't see color. And you're like, well, if you don't see color, then I guess you don't see me. Yeah. You're like, I'm not racist, I don't see color. No. That is an excuse. I know. Well, there's tone policing as well, too, right? Tone policing, I don't like your messaging. Right now, it's a little bit, you're, you're radical. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? Just tone it down. You're friend. being hostile. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's know? the conscious and unconscious bias yes. and the microaggressions. But yes. that's another level of it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, systemic because there is systemic racism. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. So, how's it impacted you specifically? <sighs> the struggle is real. Yeah. <laughs> I, sure I guess, like, how's it impacted you? But, like, how do you f- see it impacting communities? I think it impacts communities, like you said, death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. You don't realize the trauma and the harm that it has and the toll that it takes on your health and especially your mental health until you reach that breaking point. And then when you reach the breaking point and you snap, 
well, then you're the angry black lady or the yeah. angry black You man. lived up and to that stereotype. Yeah, you lived up to the stereotype. So they yeah. see yeah. the end result. They yeah. don't see all the symptoms that have led up to yeah. the end result. Death by a thousand right. cuts. They don't exactly. see that. They right? don't see that. And they can't see it. No. Right? Well, let's call those thousands cuts the, the contributors. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, so that, and that's in all intersectionalities, Every right? Because yeah. if you look at it from education, mm-hmm. employment, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? Personal. Housing, food insecurity, you know, yes. it's... Food security. It's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere, right? Yeah. 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 So if we know the history of Nova Scotia, and we've talked a little bit about the legacy, why do you think there's so many anti-black racism in- incidents? And if we put a historical lens on that, I mean, I'm sure you'll be able to elaborate on that. The, uh, the reason why I see it is because although we are starting to come and take the blinders off, mm-hmm. Nova Scotia has done an excellent job of ignoring their true history, <laughs> right? There is a reason, and I've read an article that somebody actually wrote once, and it's called Nova Scotia, the Mississippi of the North. Mm. Well, we've de- <laughs> yeah, because we haven't reconciled the fact that Nova Scotia was colonial, mm-hmm. you know, and you know had head tax for the Mi'kmaq people and ran them off their land, and you know, and yet at the same time we're buying and selling black people right down on Government Plaza downtown, a block and a half from from the waterfront. Yeah. And because we don't talk about that, mm-hmm. and because we don't acknowledge it, because we don't teach it, then it's easy for us to deny that it actually happens. Mm-hmm. And that's one of Nova Scotia's biggest problem. We can sit in this, hey, we're Canada, we're the nice country, everybody loves us, blinders that we have on. Because if you pull that veil back, it is ugly, 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 ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of but. the stuff like they may, you know used to rationalize this as well. You know, it happened before Canada was a country. <laughs> I've heard that. Right? Yeah. You're absolutely right. It did happen before Canada was a country. And slavery was outlawed in 1834. We now have Emancipation Day to recognize that. August 1st. But that does not mean that the legacy of what happened does not impact all of those people and all of those descendants mm-hmm. who live in the province today. Yeah. It's, you know what I find interesting? I think it's impact again. I think like impact, right? yeah, it's impact. versus impact. Which, yes. Guess what we're talking about here too? It's about the privilege to ignore this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right? So like you can, I don't want to look at that history, yeah. but then I'll put this on you. And I always find it's interesting to say it's shared history. I'm like, well, it's not really sh- Shared but again, was, that's the separation. Oh, it's a shared history. Yeah. No, it's not. It's history. It's history. Period. Exactly. That's what I always say that. I'm like, you know, I see that. I'm like, oh, it's shared, our shared history. I'm like, mm. but it wasn't really shared because you were kind of <laughs> telling us exactly. how to go about our business here, yeah. right? So it's well, the, telling us how to go about our business and then <laughs> burying our stories, our part of the history. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, right? If you read Lord Dalhousie's report that came out a few years ago, and it's large, it's like 400 pages, but just give it a look over. It talks about the history of Dalhousie University and how it was actually formed. And one of the things that you find out is a lot of the money that founded the university was from a lot of white men 
who bought and sold slaves <laughs> and made money. Millions of dollars. Uh, and yet you have a gigantic, yes. world-renowned institution yes. that is still alive today. Yes. And yet you want to say, yes. well, it was a long time ago. Yes. What is the what is the possible impact of it? We were doing an episode on Beachville. And, you know, Beachville, we, you know, explored the, the black refugees. And learned that Dalhousie himself opposed the settlement of black refugees in Nova Scotia. Yep. He's like, send them somewhere else. Yup. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's deep rooted here. Where did, all this, so where did all this money that was made yeah. from the buying and selling of slaves and even the starting of an academic institution, where did all that money go? Well, it went to a bank. What bank was that? Mm. Scotia <laughs> Bank, the first international Scotia Bank that they opened was on the island of Jamaica. I'm just going to leave that where it is. So, uh, but the, the funny thing is, is like, when you start thinking about that, and like, you know, these institutions, and then I, reparations, mm-hmm. reparations were paid to slave owners. Yep. And Rep- they only finished paying it off in like, was it 2017 or 2016 yeah, in England? So, yeah. They just finished paying that off. So like, what about reparations <laughs> for people that were... Like had to endure. Yeah. You lost your slaves. We'll pay you for two hundred and some odd years to make sure you get your money back. It just uh, doesn't make and sense. Everybody to else me. is like, uh, we were the slaves. And so what like happened how the, to us? How these institutions have benefited off of this, right? And there it is. And this is why I say I look around at local even here as an example, like, you know, we talked about Citadel Hill. Well mm-hmm. like there's our ancestors helped build that. Yep. But and you can go on tours and they won't even mention it. Right. They can't even, and what's crazy is that there are actual um so what level so 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 you know going on tours and it's not mentioned Mm -hmm. like you talked about the different levels of anti-black racism being excluded where right where is that what level that's a hard one i want to say that it's conscious but i don't think it is conscious i think it's partly unconscious but again that goes back to Education. Yeah. If you're not going to teach the truth in school, and we can talk about John A. Macdonald and the forming right. of Canada and yep. all kinds of foolishness, but we won't even talk about the fact that they bought and sold slaves. Well, yeah, it's, it's embedded. Like I said, it's embedded right, right from the start. Deep, right? So like, they're not even going to think about that no. as being part, part of history. Of history yeah. Because it just hasn't been discussed, right? Yeah. And yet, in contrast, we don't talk about the fact that there was enslavement of black people here in Nova Scotia mm-hmm. before Canada was a country. That's all right. But there have been apologies to the Acadians who were expelled from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, but I mean, although it happened like slavery was before Canada was a country, it still continued in the form of uh, like servitude. 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 Like, right. Exactly. So thinking about the first time yourself is experienced an anti-black racism incident, do you remember how young you were? Oh, it was school. It's yeah. always school. Yeah. <laughs> so my experience is a little bit different because when I first started school, I went to a private school. And so it was a very small, very small school. I think there were less than 100 students from grade primary to grade 12. So I didn't even realize um, that I was black in the school. It wasn't really talked about. There mm-hmm. were a few... Uh, well, there were four black kids, me, my brothers and sisters. <laughs> that was it. But there were also, you know, there were some Mi'kmaq kids that went to the school. And, you, you know, it, 
it wasn't made a deal of. All the, you know, you were treated the same by everybody. But when I switched in grade four mm. from private school to public school, the very first day, you were very made aware that you were a black kid in class. And it came from my French teacher. Really? Who made comments. <laughs> you were in school. Was it Miss, uh... Oh. Do we know? Yeah. Maybe we Let's don't want to just start names. drop names. <laughs> but I remember um, comments that she made the very first day. I know who you're day. talking about. Yeah, I know. But I remember the comment that she made um, to me and my sister. And it was it was extremely rude. She said something about, well, you know, this isn't private school. I'm sure you can figure it out or something like that. But she was very condescending and she was very, very rude. And then when she met my parents and realized that my brother, who looks nothing like me and my twin sister, and she realized we were all in the same family, the comment that she made to my parents were that they have the same father and mother. Wow. And that was pretty much my first introduction to, well, public school. So that was great. <laughs> but also the realization that you were the other. Cool. So I was like, what, eight? Was yeah. I even eight? And sadly, my younger brother was three when he was outside playing and may have been called the N-word by some kids. And yeah. then came inside and asked my mother what it meant. Yep. Because... He didn't know what it was, but he knew he didn't like it. You do not forget things like that. No, ever. you don't. That's for sure. Um, so speaking broadly about the community, do you want to talk about some relevant incidents in our community, anti-black racism incidents? The history goes back so, I mean, you want to go back as far as we can, the, right? The first race riot yeah. happened Shelburne, here. Nova Scotia. Yeah, yep. happened in Shelburne yep. from the black loyalist. So tell us about some incidents, you know, other than the... You know, race riot. Well, I mean, even even yes. out of the race riots yes. came sundown laws. My grandfather always talked about sundown laws. Mm. Tell us a little bit about it. You know, y- you better not be in a white powder town when the sun goes down. This is like you will be brought right back to your community. They said in Yarmouth, like 6, uh, you 6 p.m. Yeah, 6 p.m. past 4th Street or something. 6 p.m. past 4th Street. Yeah. And I actually did research for my master's thesis. To actually find that law, it's not on the books. It was an unwritten law. What happens if you're past 6 p.m.? The police will pick you up and either bring you to jail or they'll make sure that you're going right back to your own part of town. Yeah. But that's the precursor for things like street checks and racial profiling, right? And that's what was modern that's day. that's part of the, yes. right? There you go. There's yes. your modern day. There's your historical links. Yes. I mean, all the way back from the race riot. Yes. Where they actually formed militia groups to keep the black community out of Shelburne mm-hmm. after they ran them out to sundown laws, to racial profiling, and then we had street checks. And yet it's basically the exact same thing. I just love how you broke that all the gar- It is, you know, the guarding and corralling of black bodies intentionally done so now that we've talked about policing mm-hmm. the justice system what kind of role does do they play and i would say and that could be positively negatively in terms of anti-black racism incidents police is the first point of contact yeah. always yeah. and unfortunately history has shown us that that is usually a negative interaction yeah it needs to be better but that also means 
overhauling how policing is done. And that is not something that the system wants to change. The system is fighting very, very, very hard. That's why you have these defund the police reports. And everybody says, well, if you don't have police, then what does that mean? And again, that's the white fragility sort of casting it off saying, well, you guys don't want police. Nobody said that we didn't want police. Uh What I'm saying is that the system right now has been built from way back in the day to today, slave catchers, first form of policing, to today to corral and harm black bodies. That's what it has always been done. While at the same time protecting white bodies. That is what policing was built on. That's the system. (laughs) It's embedded. Yeah. It is systemically embedded so deeply that you will literally have people scream blue lives matter as if there are blue people in the world (laughs) and that apparently your uniform equates to your skin color (laughs) when somebody says the word black lives matter. Yeah. That's how deep it goes. Well, it's interesting you say that because then you have black members of mm-hmm. the police force, and I'm wondering if their lives matter the same way that a blue life would matter as well, too, right? And I don't... I would have there's a guess no. No, right? Yeah. And so, Given the fact that we had a police superintendent who was black held at gunpoint hmm. less than three and a half months ago by the RCMP yep. for driving while black... I'm going to say... Within his community. Yeah, within his own black community. I'm going to say no. So one of the uh, passions or pursuits that you had that led you to doing today is impact and change within the community. Yes. And you identified that policy is, uh, is where change could really happen. Mm-hmm. In thinking about, you know, anti-black racism in the education system, how has anti-black racism impacted the education system in Nova Scotia and Canada more broadly? So first I'll say, because there are probably somebody saying, well, what does she actually do? (laughs) So currently um, I'm the director of operations for what is known as the African Nova Scotian Decade for People of African Descent Coalition, or DPAD as we call it. So we were formed out of the international decade um, when the working group for for people of African descent uh, came to Canada to talk to the community. We actually met here in this building at the Black Cultural Center and presented to the UN about what was going on in the community. And we talked from education, from justice, from housing, from seniors, from youth, you name it. We we presented to the UN. And the one thing we realized is that we were all talking about the exact same thing, Mm -hmm. just in different sectors. And so why were we working like government has continued to work in silos and by themselves. Why aren't we working as a collective to address these issues? Mm -hmm. African proverb, sticks in a bundle don't break. So we need to work as a collective. Um, And so we formed the coalition. And so we are now, I think, 35 or 36 um, black organizations from around the province strong, about 100 individuals, um, open membership to... Anybody in the province who is African Nova Scotian or of African descent who lives here. And we work collaboratively on issues. Um, And we're working in the understanding that it's not that all issues aren't important, but some are more 
precedent yeah. than others. Yeah. And so when we first formed in October of 2016, in January 2017, the street checks issue hit. So we mm. were like, all right, priority is the street checks and the justice issue. So that's where we, that's where we started. Mm. Um, and so now we work, we are a mighty office of two. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and everyone else is volunteers, and we, wow. we work on all different issues, all, wow. all different issues. So, And the one thing we also want to do is we want to be able to support any of our black communities in the work that we're doing. We don't want to go in and tell our communities, this is what you should be doing, but we want them to know that if they would like support in what they're doing, we can come up with a strategy mm-hmm. together to figure that out. But that is led by you because it is your community. Mm-hmm. And we have to have that respect for our communities. Yeah, because each community is slightly different. It, they absolutely yeah. are. Uh, so how has anti-black racism impacted Nova Scotian and you know Canadian uh, education system from your perspective? So we, we already touched on it. Yep. But the issue is the erasure of the history, which gives us the ability to be in this constant state of denial. Right. Yeah. Like I said, um, I worked at the Black Lives Heritage Museum. And so I used to go and do presentations in schools all the time. And I used to talk about like the history of the black loyalists and what happened to them. But I don't just stop there talking about the black loyalists. I, I make sure that people understand that while you had free black loyalists throughout this province, well over 3,000 of them, there was still the buying and selling of black bodies mm-hmm. at the exact same yeah. time, right? Mm-hmm. That still happened. And I can tell you that I have received messages from people who were so angry that what? I would actually, I have to show them to you, they're on my phone somewhere, messages from people who have actually created memes calling me a liar, a race baiter. How dare I actually tell a grade five student that they were buying and selling slaves here in this province? I am such a liar. But then, these are from teachers, by the way. These are from actual educators who were that, like, I had people twisted mad (laughs) that I would actually tell that to, you know, a grade five student that that actually happened. But... I'm not here for your comfort Uh and I'm not here so that you can go home and skip and be all happy. If I'm going to tell you the history of the black loyalists, I'm going to tell you the actual history. So my question is what happens when you left the classroom? What did they say to those children? Who even knows? Uh, Right? Not a clue. That's a great, yeah. That's right. I'm actually like, I mean, if they're sending you those messages, what, what did they say to the class? Right? Yeah. Like, the Education Act allows for it to happen. So mm. right at the policy level, policy where level. it allows it, because it is not mandated right. Right. that you teach African Nova Scotian right. or Mi'kmaq history yep. as part of the regular curriculum. Right. It is still relegated to an elective yep. in grade 11. Yep. And how unbelievably disrespectful well, and, and it's not spoke of in university yeah, unless you want like way. another elective, right? Like it's a, another they are electives. Elective. Yeah. History should not be an elective. Mm-hmm. Actual history should yeah. not be an elective. No. And so then that goes back to 
we need to talk to the policymakers. It's the policy level, like you said. The curriculum needs to change. Yes. Yes. I mean, wouldn't we start teaching history? I mean, you get a little bit of it in grade primary one and two, but not a lot. It's just like, you know, here's the map of Canada. Yeah. 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 Here's some provinces. But really, when you start, it's like grade three. Yeah. So why are we still learning about foolishness that we don't need to learn about? I really don't care John A. McDonald was the first prime minister. Don't even care at all. Yeah. Did you know he bought and sold slaves? <laughs> right? There it is. Like, seriously. Right. Look how easy it is to admit history. We mm-hmm. learn in class yeah. about the French explorer, Samuel de Champlain. Mm-hmm. We learn about You're him. Absolutely right. Do you learn about his interpreter with the Mi'kmaq? who was Matthew DaCosta, a black man. We will learn about the explorer himself and not even people who were with him. We have completely admitted that side of the history. That is intent, intent again, intentionally done to erase the black voice. No surprise, right? No, there's no surprises here, you know, especially coming from like these communities and understanding how we've uh, endured over, over time. Not surprised. But in your experience, why is this discussion about inclusion like so important like right now? I think inclusion is important, but again, it goes back to intent versus impact. And it will always go back to that. Yeah. Inclusion is great if you are actually going to be inclusive at all levels. Yes. If you are going to be inclusive just to check a box, well, then you might as well go home because you're wasting my time. And I think we've done very good at ticking the box for inclusion. But have we actually looked about how to be inclusive in our policies and inclusive in our board rooms and inclusive at uh, an executive level and inclusive at a government level? Does the face of all of these institutions truly reflect what Nova Scotia looks like today. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because then people go to statistics, right? Mm-hmm. But if we go to statistics about African Nova Scotians, we make up 37.3% of the racially visible population. Largest group. Largest group. And yet, if you look at the workplace, so we represent like 2% of, or 2.5% of the entire Nova Scotia population, yeah. which isn't that high. But if you look at government, we actually make up more than 2% right. of government employees. And everybody says, well, there, we're being equitable. But no, where are those employees stationed? Yep. <laughs> are those employees stationed at an entry level? And have they been at that entry level their entire lives? Yeah. The majority of them, yes. Are they at the executive level? Are they at the deputy minister level? And that's no. where the change comes. And that's where the change comes. Yeah. So, again, while the intent is to make sure that you are being equitable, if you are being equitable to tick a box and be inclusive, then you're not actually doing anything. Right. And this leads to, like, another interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. We're talking about organizational settings, yeah. right? But how does that representation look in the education system mm-hmm. versus how it should look? to show that we're truly being inclusive. So you can bring in black teachers, but then the question that I have for you is, you know, if you bring in black teachers, that's great. But where are those black teachers stationed? If you look in the rural areas, 
We don't have a lot of black teachers. And then, and we have a cousin who was a black teacher, and they put her in an all-white school. So what? So when you say they put her, like, I'm not sure like, how, like, the teaching She was bilingual. Worked. Okay. And so they put her in an all-white French school, which helps none of the black kids whatsoever. They don't get to see the representation. Not only do they not get to see the representation, they don't get to see the representation so of just, a black teacher who speaks French. Yeah. So do you which apply is an to even the smaller? Yeah, commodity. that's true. Do you apply to the school board and then they place you out, or do you apply to a school? Like, how does that work? You can apply for specific positions. Yes. But then I think they also have like open call, and then you know, like you said, you have teachers. But do you have black guidance counselors? Mm-hmm. Do you have a lot of black principals? Do you have black vice principals, superintendents? All of them. I mean, we literally got Nova, the Tri Counties, where we're from, yeah. had Nova Scotia's first black superintendent. We didn't keep him long. Yep. Yeah, but we right. had the first black superintendent ever. So, what does that say about Nova Scotia's education system? And even today, there's still one. So I can imagine how hard it is for them by so, themselves. So one of the questions is, like, what do we need to do to improve Nova Scotia education yeah. uh, you know, system? But it, it sounds like it's just, you know, increased representation. Like, hire people and give them opportunities to attain. Across all levels. Yeah, yeah. But you also have to, re- you also have to look at what is not working. Mm. And, you know, we talk a lot in, at, at policy level to change things about data because data tells us a lot and it's, it's the one thing that government wants. If you want to be able to prove something yeah. to government and policy and change makers, you have to come with numbers. Yeah, I mean, that's which it's is industry, com- like yeah, right? everything. Which is completely counteractive to how the black community works because yeah. we work on voice and collectiveness. Yeah. But voice as we have seen if you look at justice and everybody talking about their experiences with police is discredited until the data is shown and they're like oh maybe there's an issue the data says that there's a problem and then the community's like are you serious but it's the same thing we have more data in education than anywhere else right now and we know what the data actually tells us and yet Policy changes aren't being made. So how do we keep government mm. accountable for that? Look at IPPs. Oh, bane yeah, of my existence. Like, yeah, and I mean... The community screamed for years well, it's not even that there was an issue of IPPs, which goes back to being placed. general class. Right? But I mean, that's historically how they viewed and educated our community, right? We've, it goes way back. This Again, comes, this comes Everything is in a historical this, sink, yeah. and it's this, systemic. This, the exact same thing reinvents itself yeah. generation after generation. Yeah. Back in our parents' day, yeah. it was the general class. I'm say something to you. And before that, it was segregated schools. Right, and now it's IPP. But you know what? My, it's funny. You like this. My dad said this to me one time. It makes perfect sense. He said, watch how it changes and it lies. Yeah. And he's like, it's different. They'll find a way around it. Yep. And they'll do it in different ways, whether it's, yep. you know, IPP, 
pee or, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, they're starting to pull access from program. Well, we don't even get programming half the time anyway, right? So it's like it lies in different ways and different and it manifests in different ways. So it's so funny you brought that home with segregated schools, mm-hmm. right? General schools, IPP. It yeah. just makes sense. And that's ingrained. It, it is. It's the, it's the same reiteration. And again, it happened in justice. Yeah. It, it happens in education. So then where else does it also happen? Right? You look at the history of how these things manifest. Yeah. I mean, child welfare. Mm. Happens in, it, you know, it happens in the same way. Yeah. So, you know, the long-term mental health situations or uh, impacts that it has to, you know, people from our community, what are they? And then, like, what's, what's our path forward? That is difficult because our path forward has to be done collectively, and it has to be done together. Yes. Um, you know, at, at, at D-PAD, yes, <laughs> at, at, at D-PAD, we... Um, use the African proverb, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If yeah. you want to go far, you go together. Yes. That is what it. we were built on, and that's what we want to do. Everything that we do, we do as a collective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's difficult because one of the best tactics that was ever used for our community was to divide and conquer. And it manifests itself just like everything else. There are new reiterations of it, but it manifests itself generation after generation after generation, whether it's the rural communities versus the urban communities versus organizations who may get funding here, who don't get funding here to, you know. And that is always going to be our our hardest struggle. If we cannot find a way to put the Eurocentric mindset of I, 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 me, 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 mm-hmm. out of our minds and get to an Afrocentric idea of the collective we, we are going to be stuck in this spot. We will make headway and we will make gains, but they won't be as fast and they won't be as solid as we want them to be i don't don't, like you just sum that up beautifully i couldn't even think of a better way to say that because this is one of the biggest things we've i've found and Mm -hmm. part of the reason we did this is because i i see that divide yep i see that divide and how i've been you know, my lived experience in that sense and the reason how you've been received how i've been received right and you know, I don't think I've, I, I see it through a different lens in that sense. And it's great to hear somebody kind of reiterate the fact that we need to collectively work together, yeah. you know, and <laughs> right. you know, like, and I don't want to mean to cut you off, but the interesting things, it, it thing is that, you know, the work that we're doing, like in this, in this, mm-hmm. uh, in, in this, you know, in, in, in our endeavor here to, you know, create these connections, mm-hmm. highlights that we're more the same than we are different. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's, it's true. Yeah. And then so that when we start, the messaging will become clearer and clearer as we continue to go through and do this. And people will start seeing this is what, so this is so impactful. Like, just, you don't even understand this is the way that you've summarized that. 
is where we need to go. The problem with our community is we don't know how to get there. And I think what happens sometimes is, and I'm speaking generally, is that we tend to start going back to that Eurocentric kind of approach. Yep. I'll give you a good example. Like, this may not make this, but like where I started at my work, some people don't trust me. They're like, mm, yeah. but because I'm not part of this community, like this education. I think you community. need to define it a little bit more, though. It's like some people aren't, uh, or some people are judging you, but it's the people that are from the same communities. Like, right. yeah, like the people that are represented as African Nova Scotia. When I when I go into a, to a community, because we want the community to know that we're there and yeah. we're there to support them, and when I go into a community. Um, it could be rural, it could be urban, and say, you know, if there is an issue, you know, I can't say that I'm a miracle worker and I can get things changed. Right. But what I can say is, as the coalition and the members, we will do our best to sit down, have a meeting, devise a strategy that you agree with, and then work on your behalf with you, yeah. right? And have you there all the time. And the one thing that we hear, especially in the rural areas, and you already know what it is, Sean, the rural-urban divide. Well, the rural black communities or the urban black communities don't care about us. And we'll always hear that. And us as people who grew up in rural black communities still get it from our own community. And they're like, oh, you moved away and forgot about us. No, I'm trying to bring you with me. But <laughs> yeah. you have to be able to trust yes. that Here's the word. Trust. my intent yeah. is for a better impact for all of us, That's right. not just yes. me. It's not That's about right. me. It's yes. about we. Yes. Ubuntu, I am because mm. we are. Right? You just dropped gems over here. <laughs> And it's hard to move past. It's hard to move past that because we have had generations upon generations of trauma that have told us we can't trust anybody That's and right. even our own community. Well, even ourselves. Well, that goes back to slave days. It does. Exactly. It does. You know, right? It because does. they used to pit. Slaves against slaves, yes, right? Exactly, and, right? Know, the house slaves versus the steel slaves, slaves yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, okay, well, you're going to whip him. <laughs> Let's get a slave to do that. Like, right. it's, it's, yeah. it's, and it's all embedded. It's strategically done, exactly. right? Exactly. And so, yeah. like, it's really interesting. So, I guess I got two questions for you. And, like, the first one is the, I think you kind of left the message already. Yes, I think so. But I want to talk about the decade. Mm-hmm. And so, me, you and me have had conversations about yeah. decade. What happens after the decade's over? Keep going. <laughs> and so this is and what, I mean, what I mean by that is that the gains and the momentum that we've started because of the international decade cannot end December 31st, 2024. No. That's right. Yeah. Um, some in government will be like, okay, the decade's over, let it go. But the United Nations is putting in a permanent forum for people of African descent and will call upon member organizations to provide updates, which means us as an organization, and even if our organization isn't around, 
will still be able to provide updates as to what is happening That's so that the That's world great. knows. Because I always worry, you know, we're getting, we're winding down here. We are. A couple years left, right? Yeah. We have you know, just I've had about some two years left. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. been. What would I like to see before the decade ends? Yeah. What would you yes. like to see? Um, one of the big pieces that we are working on at DPAD is recognition. Um, and so that is recognition federally of African or black Canadians, whatever mm. the definition they want it to be, as a group of people. Yeah. It is high time that we are taken out of this umbrella of visible minority. We have had a much larger impact than that. Yep. And here in Nova Scotia, recognition and legislation that recognizes African Nova Scotians as a distinct people. So are we working on that? Oh, we're working on it. Okay. Yeah, okay. we we're are working, working on, on it. Yeah. yeah um, and that's not to say because there is an internal conversation, I guess I will call it, of people who say, well, if you recognize African Nova Scotians as a distinct people, then you're leaving everyone else of African descent out of the conversation. That's not the point, though. No. It is not the point, but it's not true. Yeah. Right. What we are saying is, if you are recognizing African Nova Scotians, you are recognizing that history yes. that goes back to the 1600s. Yes. That has worked through all of the history that we've talked that about predates today. predates the conception of Canada. Exactly. Right? That predates, what was it, Upper and Lower Canada at yep. that point, or whatever yep. it was called, yeah. and gets us to where we are today. Yes. It is just saying, I recognize you yes. and I see you yeah. and I acknowledge yeah. the fact that your ancestors helped to give us what we have. Thank you. It's not saying it's not that, that I difficult. have anything less no. and it's not excluding you, uh -huh. but it is just saying I pay honor to that, yeah. which is actually an Afrocentric way of thinking. Yeah. yeah. We always go back. Well, and it's always like I've heard this And before. acknowledge our ancestors. It's, so we acknowledge our African Nova Scotians. Yeah, and so like our African Nova Scotians, but we know our lineage yeah. is, doesn't just stop there. We know where it came from exactly. as well, too. And I think yeah. that's where we're like, you know, saying it's interesting. I've had this conversation before, like, you know, people of African descent and then like, or black people in African Nova Scotians. Like, well, why can't you just say black? I'm like, because the experience for us has been significantly different right. it's been shaped here yeah. Yeah. you know yeah, when we talk about experience like we're really talking about impact yeah, yeah. right i'm <laughs> not saying yours you're, you're yeah. experiencing any less racism than what we experience on a daily basis yeah. no what i am saying is we need to acknowledge what the people who came before us went through thank you for for coming out and being a part of this absolutely and i hope that we can keep this conversation going in yeah. one form or another. Like, Absolutely. You know. I would be more than happy. Thank you for listening to the Loyalist Connections podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some new insights. This episode was produced by your hosts, Maurice Gabriel Downey and myself, Sean Smith, of the Loyalist Connections Creative Group. We want to send out a special thanks uh, to our community partners, the Black Cultural Center and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society for their continued support. And shout out our alma mater, St. Mary's University, especially the St. Mary's University Goresbrook Research Institute Partnership for making resources available to us to complete this project.
We encourage you to join us as we continue to host these meaningful conversations and uncover information on our communities and other important aspects of our history. In the meantime, don't forget to listen, like, follow, and share the Loyalist Connection podcast on all your favorite platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connection Podcast for updates and behind the scenes content. And until the next episode, stay stay connected. connected.